Our Hebrew Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Church, hear what the Spirit is saying to you through these passages. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Our strength, our rock, our love, and our redeemer. Amen. I am, I am not sure when the story of Noah's flood began to make me uncomfortable. Like many kids raised in Christian homes, Noah's Ark was a familiar inspiration for chunky play sets and pastel illustrations in children's Bibles and decor for the nursery at church. It made sense, kids like animals. I mean, have you ever been to a zoo? And no story in the Bible has more animals, therefore kids' stuff should be decorated with images taken from Noah's Ark. Two by two, the cartoonish animals weaved their way around my childhood memories as they marched into the ark, Noah counting them with his staff in hand. At some point, the bright colors began to fade, and the familiar notes of the story started to ring sour. I felt as if people weren't talking about the center of this story, that there was this tremendous menacing gap surrounded by rainbows and giraffes. The story of Noah's Ark is a story of destruction, not just of a few people and not only of a few acres, but of all living things on the earth. There's a sharp dissonance between smiling zebras stepping onto a swaying boat and the divinely executed destruction we find in the pages of our scriptures. How do we begin to make sense of this? 
a few hundred years before the oral tradition of Noah's flood was written down, a different flood story was written into tablets in Babylon. As told in these tablets, known as the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods of Babylon argued with one another about what to do about human wickedness. One of them, Enlil, comes up with a plan. He will flood the earth, destroying everything on it so that they can start all over from scratch. The god Ea is horrified, but is limited in what he can do because he was sworn to secrecy. But Ea is smart, and knowing that he'll be overheard, he talks loudly to himself so that Utnapishtim, a mortal, will overhear. Utnapishtim tricks his neighbors into building a big boat, brings aboard a bunch of animals, and survives the flood. Enlil's flood is so mighty that even the gods climb the tallest mountains to avoid the deluge. Utnapishtim survives, the only person to survive, and the other gods berate Enlil for the overkill. Couldn't he have sent a few wolves to kill a few people teach him a lesson? Or maybe some locusts to ruin the crops? Enlil, embarrassed, promises to never do it again. And as a sort of apology to Utnapishtim, he makes him immortal. Flood stories like the Babylonian tale were swimming in the cultural marsh of the ancient Israelites. They may reflect anxiety about the localized flooding of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the potential for destruction that also made for the fertile soil of Mesopotamia. Perhaps these stories touched on some deep cultural memory of a prehistoric exceptional flood, a flood of widespread destruction and death. But there's another layer to this. Water throughout the ancient Near East, represented the chaos of uncreation. In the first chapter of Genesis, God's spirit hovers over the watery face of the deep before calling forth light. On the second day, God takes this water and separates it into the waters above and the waters below. The watery sky held up by a dome and the seas, rivers, and lakes on the ground. Between uncreation and chaos, creation exists in an envelope. Psalm 89 describes God as ruling over the raging sea, calming the waves that threaten creation. The Israelites knew chaos. They knew uncreation. By the time the ancient stories of Noah were collected and written down, the Israelites had experienced varying degrees of destruction, of exile and colonialism by the powerful empires that surrounded them. They'd watched time after time as their cities were destroyed, their social networks disintegrated, and their beliefs about who God was and what God wanted were fractured. 
Israel was like a boat at sea tossed by the waves of empire, vulnerable to natural and human-made disasters. You can see why the story of Noah drew them in, why they saw themselves reflected in the floodwaters. In Noah's story, the great dome that God placed over the earth at the beginning cracked. And creation was uncreated. The watery sky flooded the world. Chaos rushed in and Noah barely escaped with the last remnant of life on earth. Some translations tell us that Noah's wife closed the ark's door in the face of the water, slamming the door on chaos like an unwanted guest. For 40 days, the family remained in isolation, grieving their neighbors, their friends, the lives that they had before the flood. Throughout our Bible, 40 represents a fullness of time. It's the time necessary for transformation. To experience something for the fullness of 40 is enough time to begin the process of transformation in ourselves and in the world. For 40 years, the Israelites were in the wilderness, wandering. For 40 days, Jesus was in the wilderness, tempted. For 40 days, Noah was on the ark, waiting. For 40 days in Lent, give or take a few Sundays, we ask God to transform us so we can be ready for resurrection. We entered this season of chaos, this season of turmoil and danger and lament during Lent last year. This has been a long Lent. Of course, the streams that led to this chaos existed long before the onset of the pandemic. The chaos of racism forms the soil from which the U.S. grew. Christian nationalism and white supremacy are woven into the fabric of this country and into how we experience it. But it was Lent when we closed our doors settled in and felt the chaos sweep around us, felt ourselves caught up in the search. Perhaps it felt to you as if the heavens had cracked open and poured uncreation upon us. Over time, of course, we developed our sea legs, learning the little habits and rituals and thoughts that would help us make it Another day, another week, another month, but the chaos surrounded us nonetheless. It still surrounds us. I don't know if, we, if we've acknowledged the depth of what we've experienced. Like the family on the ark, many of us remain isolated, grieving our neighbors and our friends and our family and the lives we had before the flood. Yes, we've gotten our sea legs, but the rain is stopping and we're going to step off of this ark soon. 
Friends, I can't tell you if we are on day 25 or day 39 of this flood, but every day we're sending out little birds looking for glimmers of hope. We've waded through the waters of uncreation with God and each other, and a new challenge is staring us in the face. What now? What will the world look like after all this destruction? How can we create a better world with God? Again, like we do every week, we turn to an ancient text for guidance, to the community that comes before us, and we realize that our scriptures offer points of wisdom. I'd like to highlight three, though I'm sure you can find more. First, we must mourn. The story of Noah's Ark continues after our reading today concludes. Noah and his family depart the ark. Verses 20 and 21 read, Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk. There could be, any, many, there could be many reasons for this appearing in the text, literary, historical, and cultural. But Noah's response to his survival of the flood points us to a danger. The danger of not acknowledging the depth of what he experienced. Noah witnessed the great uncreation. He witnessed the death of everything. It would seem he didn't walk with his grief to its fullness and sought to anesthetize himself to withdraw entirely out of fear and guilt and the trauma of it all. We must recognize the pain we're holding, the anger that we're holding in our minds and our spirits and in our bodies. We must say the names of those that we've lost. We must speak our pain and our sorrow and our confusion. My friends, the things that we've experienced have changed us. I know they've changed us as I've walked with us through this past year. We as a community must do the work of healing with each other, otherwise we will not be well. Next, we can recognize that what will come doesn't have to be like what was. The past, our existence before the flood, doesn't determine what will be on dry land. In our story, God, after witnessing the destruction brought about through uncreation, through violence, decides to hang up God's bow. The bow in the sky, the rainbow, to the ancient Israelites was God's weapon of war hanging as a reminder to God never to pick it up again. Throughout the Bible, God changes God's mind in response to God's relationship with humanity. After the flood, God charts a new path, a path that won't be based on destruction, but on relationship and promise. As we step out of the ark, the text reminds us that we have a responsibility to join with God in re-creation. By God's grace, together we can build a new world, 
a world of justice, of mutuality, and of love. The old way of doing things has been washed away. What will take its place? Finally, we can recognize our interconnectedness with all things. The flood story ends with a promise, a promise made several times to the point of being a little bit annoying, a promise that God makes that the world will never drown in chaos again. But notice the details in this repeated promise. The covenant is not just with Noah, but with Noah's descendants and with the sparrows of the air and the critters of the desert and the cows in their pens. As we navigate our continued humanitarian and environmental crises, we must always remember that our well-being is woven up with one another and with the rest of creation. Together we must recreate in relationship with the natural world and all humanity. No one and no thing can be left behind. By God's promise, God has bound us all together. This Lent, this 40 days of transformation, God is inviting us into the work of preparing to step off the ark. We are yet afloat upon chaos, but we see the promise of recreation just over the horizon. What will we do to mourn all that we've experienced on the waves? What does the new world look like? How can we strengthen our relationships with God, with each other, and with creation? There's an epilogue to this story that launches us into Lent. Some 900 years or so after Noah's story was bound up together with other stories of God and humanity, God in the flesh stepped into the muddy waters of the Jordan River. The waters were active and living with possibility, rippled by countless others seeking recreation as well, those asking John the Baptist to wash them clean and help them transform. God was in the waters with them. Suddenly, the dome above the earth cracked. This time, instead of watery chaos, came a voice speaking beloved. As we enter our 40 days of transformation, God goes with us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Loving God, you have been with us in the chaos and you will be with us after the flood. Give us the wisdom to mourn the strength to transform, and the love to relate. Shape our hearts and form our minds that we might participate in your work of recreation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us, let us join together in singing hymn number 2025, As the Deer Found in the Bulletin, and in all the things that are emailed to you. And Tara, are we doing it once or? Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna sing it through twice. <laughs>